Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you again, Christopher, for getting us started this morning. Um, welcome to worship here at North Bible Church, the uh, quarantine hair edition this morning. So I've grown mine out a little bit. Aaron, great to have you back again. He's got the quarantine hair. Aaron, I'm having, a, I'm having just a secret competition with myself to see who is going to get a haircut first, me or you, okay? So I'm just kind of putting that out there. It's, it's kind of my own thing, but maybe we can make it into a thing. I have a feeling you're going to beat me in this, though. You've got a head start, so... But it's great to have you back, and uh, great to have you joining us with, joining us this morning as we continue our series on Crucial Questions. It's a series we've been going through this entire summer, where we've been taking questions from you that you've submitted to us, and talking about things like Christianity, the Bible, faith, and culture. And today we're going to be answering this big question that I think is really an important question for us to answer. It has a lot of possible answers to it, because it's really general. But I think, and in some ways it may seem a little bit simple and basic, but I think it really is essential and foundational. And we answer this question, this question is going to be, what does, or why does the church matter? And so I think these are questions really that we all have probably asked at one time or another, whether we're in church or not in church, right? We've asked the questions like, why church? Why should I go to church? Why should I be a part of church? And certainly this has become a really relevant question for us right now, facing what we're facing. I know that as a staff, we've constantly asked this question that, you know, in this world that we're living in right now, in these past four months or so, what is church supposed to look like right now? And of course, when you ask that question, you have to get back to the place of what is church supposed to be about in the first place, and why does church matter? But many of you know that questions like these have been asked even before the pandemic. A lot of emerging generations have been asking lately, who have been raised in the church even, what is the point of even going to church or being a part of the church? You'll hear a lot of people say, if I practice my faith, I can do it on my own, and my relationship with Jesus isn't determined by my involvement in the church. And certainly some of the scandals that have happened in the church, like uh, abuse and sexual abuse and, and, and greed and those kinds of things, have not helped, has not really helped the reputation of the church. So we're going to talk about this morning, though, why it matters that you are a part of the church. And I'm going to make a case why the church matters. This is kind of be my love letter to the church, if you will, a little bit. And this is coming from somebody who is probably, I think, one of the most unlikely people to be standing here this morning talking about what the church is and why the, why the church is so great. Because being a pastor, growing up being a pastor was the last thing I thought I would be. And I think if you talk to anybody who knew me as a kid and who knew me growing up, they would agree. They would feel the same way. When I was a kid, I was known more for getting thrown out of Sunday school classes than anything else in our church. Uh, we were, when we were younger, we had, a, we had a Sunday school class that was led by a teacher by the name of Gary. And I was in middle school at the time. We were in a small church that was just getting started, so we were still meeting in an elementary school. And our middle school ministry basically consisted of me and a couple of other close friends. And Gary was our Sunday school teacher, so we'd show up every Sunday morning, and it was just the two of us, and we were three absolute knuckleheads who just gave Gary a hard time every single time he tried to teach us. And he prepared lessons week after week, and we kind of made this deal where we would come in on Sunday mornings, and we would perform Saturday Night Live skits from the night before. And so while Gary was trying to teach us Sunday school lessons, we were there reenacting Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and guys like David Spade and Mike Myers. Even as I think about it, I still feel bad for Gary all these years later. And I grew up Southern Baptist, and so we were at church, it seemed like, every time the doors were open. We were there Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, we were there Wednesday nights, and sometimes even there on Sunday nights. 
which was unfortunate for me because I can remember as a kid church being the last place I ever wanted to be. In fact, I apparently made such a stink about being at church that my parents made a deal with me one day on a Sunday, and they said, you know, if you, go, if you don't want to be here on Sunday morning, uh, you can go into the car and listen to the church broadcast in the car with your friends, but we're going to quiz you on what the pastor says in the sermon afterwards. And so I took it as an opportunity to be anywhere outside of the church, and I, and, and I took them up on that. And so for weeks on end, every single week, my friends and I would go into the parking lot, and we would sit in the car and listen to the radio broadcast of the church that was going on uh, just a few feet away from us. Anything so that we could get out of church. And I know that when you're in middle school, nobody likes going to church, but it typically is something that most people outgrew. Well, I never outgrew that feeling growing up. And yet our family was always really involved in the church. I remember when I was in high school, my mom volunteered to host some of the youth ministry meetings. And so middle schoolers and high schoolers would gather at our house, and I would be in the back room, locked in an office, playing computer games while the rest of the people were there at a youth ministry event in our home. And I remember there was a youth pastor who, during that time who would even come barging into the door after all the students have left at the end of the event, and he would talk to me for about five to ten minutes and graciously invite me to come to the next youth ministry meeting, and I would graciously decline. And, when it, when, and by the time I was in high school, my parents could tell how badly I didn't want to be at church, that even though they made the rule that as long as you're in this house, you're going to church with us, they eventually got to the place where they said, you know what, we've given up. If you don't want to go to church, don't come. And so, yes, I'm a pastor now, but I would say that even in a lot of ways, it's amazing that I'm still a pastor. Because even after growing up the way that I did and becoming a pastor, I could say this, that some of the most difficult times in my life have come through the church. And not just because I was like in church at the time and difficult things were happening. I mean that at least that, that some of the worst things have happened to me in my life because of church people and because of my involvement and connection to church. If I think about some of the worst things I've been called in my life and some of the most difficult things that I've had to go through with people, at least half of those things have had to do, while I've, have had to do with being in church and being a pastor. And I don't doubt that I deserved some of them. In fact, I probably deserved all of them, to be honest. But at the same time, I have been hurt in my life by the church more than a lot of people have. And it's a part of the calling of being a pastor. You're going to take shots from people, and I understand that. But I also have been through situations that have been unique times of church conflict that have caused me to be things like physically ill from the stress, that have caused me to be abandoned by friends and shut out by people who said that they loved me and cared for me, gossiped about, publicly slandered, and humiliated, all in the church. And I don't say that to ask really for sympathy or anything like that. I tell you that because it's really amazing, honestly, that I'm still in church and that I'm a pastor today. And I'm not a pastor out of duty or obligation. I'm a pastor in the church because I love being a pastor. And believe it or not, I love the church. And that's the case I want to make for you this morning in answering this question, why does the church matter? I want to tell you why I love the church so much and why I still believe that it matters. Because I'm going to tell you today that the following Jesus, being a part of the church, I should say, is absolutely central to following Jesus. And I don't buy for a second the notion that you can follow Jesus in faithfulness and in obedience by yourself disconnected from a local church. And I know that can come across as a bit of 
as a bit self-serving because some people might say, well, of course you're going to say that. You're a pastor. You want the church to grow, and you know that if the church closed down, you would lose your job. That's true on both accounts. I do want North Bible Church to grow, and if North Bible Church closed down tomorrow, I wouldn't have a job. But that's not the main reason I say that. There are certainly much better jobs that could provide me with those things than being a pastor. I want to show you why the church matters today by looking at Scripture and what the Bible has to say about it, what God has to tell us about this wonderful thing that we call the church. And so like so many times in the Bible, one of the best places to find the purpose of something is to look at the creation of that thing. We've been doing that a lot through this series in Crucial Questions. We've been talking about the creation narrative, as we've been talking about humanity created in God's image, and all of those things. We've talked about the narrative of the Bible. We've gone back to the creation story time and time again to gain the purpose of what this is all about. Well, one of the places that we can see the creation of the church, really the place, is in Acts chapter 2. Krista just talked about it briefly a few minutes ago. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 and more directly Acts chapter 2 this morning. But starting, and we're going to be starting right at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to begin reading there in a few minutes. But I want to talk a little bit about Acts chapter 1 and what has set up Acts chapter 2 before we get there. We've come, as we get into Acts chapter 2, we've come right just off of the first chapter where Jesus, after the resurrection, has spent 40 days with his disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, we see that he ascends into heaven, but before he ascends, he says to the disciples a couple of things. First of all, he gives them this commissioning. And he says to them, you are going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to testify and, uh, to, what, to all that I have said and all that I have done, and your lives actually are going to represent the power of the gospel in terms of salvation, resurrection, and new life. And then he says to them, go to the city of Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will be with you in doing this. Now the disciples don't know this yet, but as Jesus says this, the idea of the church is already being put into motion. And this is an idea and a plan that God has had since the very beginning. The church is not an accident, it's not plan B, it's not a holding tank for people while we wait for Jesus to come back. The church has been God's plan from the beginning, and we see that plan begin to unfold here in Acts chapter 1, and then spilling over and culminating in Acts chapter 2. So before we read Acts chapter 2, let's take a quick note of all that we are being told in the first chapter. First, again, this is post-resurrection Jesus, who has spent 40 days with the disciples. Of course, we're told that Jesus not only appeared to the 12 disciples, but to maybe hundreds of other people who were Jesus followers at the time. So there's an entire community, maybe hundreds of people who are there who have seen the resurrected Jesus. And this Jesus, who has been resurrected and who had gone to the cross to die for the salvation of these early believers, are now gathered in this community, all united by what Jesus has done and the fact that they have commonality in following Jesus and believing in the good news or the gospel of Christ. So the first thing that we realize is that the church is a community with Jesus and the gospel of Jesus at the center. Secondly, then Jesus gives the command or the commissioning to the disciples that is meant really for the whole church throughout all ages, but he says to them, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And right after that, he ascends into heaven. Now here's why this is important, the ascension in particular, is that when Jesus ascends into heaven, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, the power hand or the kingly seat, if you will. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see all this kingly authority language that kind of represents what Jesus is doing after the ascension, even right now as he is reigning over the heavens and the earth. 
But this command, so, so this command that Jesus gives to the disciples is more, of, is more than just a kind of moralization from a rabbi that's teaching his disciples about how to live. It's more than just a, a, a friend who is leaving his friends behind and saying, I'll come back for you. It's more, even, it's more than even just a religious leader who is establishing a religion. This is the king of the universe who is giving a divine command to be followed. And as Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and, so forth, and therefore I'm calling you to go and make disciples. That this command comes with authority, and it comes with power, and it's the banner under which Jesus establishes his church. And we can't forget this because no matter what we may think the church is for us and what we may want the church to be for us, the church is not primarily about us. The church is about King Jesus and his mission and his redemptive mission to the ends of the earth. And he gives this mission as one who has been resurrected and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So this mission holds authority and it holds purpose and it holds follow-through. It will be accomplished. So the church is also then a community with the greatest and most essential mission that the world has ever known. And third, Jesus then tells them, this is how you're going to accomplish this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you to be both the power of God in them and God's presence with them. And we're going to see a little bit more about the ministry and the effects of the Holy Spirit as we turn to Acts chapter 2 here in just a moment. But one thing that we also see from Acts chapter 1 is that the church is a community where the power and presence of God dwells. So with that said, we're ready to see the creation of the church in the first part of Acts chapter 2. So if you'll turn with me, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I want to read from that, starting in verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are, these, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that, each, that, that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. So the scene opens up in Acts chapter 2, at the celebration of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a festival that was celebrated exactly 50 days after the ending of the Passover. Pentecost actually means 50 because it marked out this celebration that was in reference to the biggest celebration of the year, the Passover. Now, you may remember that Jesus was crucified during the Passover, resurrected three days later, and then spent 40 days, as we said, with the disciples. And so what we're encountering here in Acts chapter 2 is about a week after Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1. And the disciples have made it to the city of Jerusalem, and they're hanging out in a large room, probably a large house, with what scholars believe is probably about 100 to 120 other Jesus followers. 
And they're all sitting there because Jesus has told them to go to the city of Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they're celebrating Pentecost together, and the Spirit comes on the day or during the celebration of Pentecost, which is really important because it's really interesting to see what God is saying to us about the celebration of Pentecost and how it relates to the Holy Spirit. First of all, Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits. It was a festival, in other words, that marked out the beginning of the annual harvest, when everybody would bring in the first pieces of the harvest as a grain offering before God. It was a time then that represented new beginnings and new life. And when you think about the fact that Jesus is called the first fruit of, new creation, of the new creation, it really is amazing to see what God is doing here at Pentecost. He's sending his spirit on this exact day to communicate a big part of what the spirit does, that he brings new life, that he brings new creation, and through the church brings the harvest of the mission of Jesus. And we actually see this happening right here in this room. Remember, Jesus said the mission is for the disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we read here that Luke is pointing out the fact that what happens in that room happens among people who are gathered from every nation under earth. There's a representative of all these different nations, and they're listed out there in Acts chapter 2. And what happens is that they start hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And so in a lot of ways, the ends of the earth have actually been brought into this one room, and this promise that Jesus is talking about is beginning to take root right through that first day that the church is created. Now Luke, who's the author of Acts, roots us in this sig this, the significance of the celebration of Pentecost, but then moves on to the action that's happening in the room. And we see things like fire happening. The wind, the wind of the Holy Spirit reminds us of all the places in Scripture where the Spirit is represented as wind. Like in, going back, back to the creation narrative, when the Spirit moves across creation, He gives life to creation. You think about in Ezekiel's ministry, when Ezekiel was in the, had the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, that the Spirit sweeps through like wind and gives life to those bones. Fire. Fire is also seen in the scene. Fire represents God's presence. If you think about the book of Exodus, for example, the burning bush, God's presence there with Moses. He also led his people by a pillar of fire in the wilderness. And fire also represents holiness or people who are being set apart. And so what we see is what Luke is pointing out here is what is happening here is that God is showing us that the power and presence of God has arrived with these people, and it's not just with them, but the Holy Spirit, God's presence, is in them. And he has set them apart for a purpose, for this mission. Secondly, they begin to speak in different languages, but not just in unintelligible babble, in ways that other people standing in the room can actually hear their own language. And as we said, there's a picture of this good news being spoken all the way to the ends of the earth. That even as these people return home after the festival, they'll be taking the, the good news, this experience, the beginning of the church, and the Spirit with them to all these nations to the ends of the earth. And again, this is the beginning of the mission that Jesus talked about the church would play out with amazing force. And in the rest of the book, if you read the next section, the first thing they do is they go down to the temple in Jerusalem and they begin to preach the gospel. Peter grabs the mic and begins to preach the gospel in the middle of the Pentecost celebration in the city of Jerusalem to hundreds of people who are gathered there, maybe thousands. It, was like, it would be like kind of going to um, Times Square on New Year's Eve and just snatching the microphone out of Ryan Seacrest's hand and start preaching the gospel. 
I mean, that's what's going on here. It's amazing, it's wild, it's bold, it's life-giving, and this is the church. This is how it begins. So what does this show us then about why the church matters today? I think the church matters most when the church is on mission. Look, the church is never irrelevant because even when we're not on mission and even when we're disobedient and even when we're lazy, God still graciously moves among us and around us. But the church is at its best and at its most meaningful and most alive and vibrant when it is engaging this mission of Jesus for which it was created. And we have to realize something here, that when the church was created, it was created for a mission. Jesus first gives the mission, then he gives the Spirit, and then he gives the church. Christopher Wright explains it this way, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Now, the church has historically declined and gone dormant when it's lost the vision of gospel mission in the, church, uh, in the world. That the church is primarily a community that exists for mission. And I got to say that both things are constantly threatened in the culture that we live in today. Modern Western culture, there are two things in particular that fight against the aspects of community and mission, and they are everywhere prevalent, not only in our culture, but even in the way that we see and understand our Christianity and the church. These two things are individualism and consumerism. Individualism directly fights against community, and consumerism directly fights against the missional call of Jesus in our lives. Here's how. You know, one of the questions that was asked in the Crucial Questions submissions is, what should I get out of church? Now, I know this is an honest question, and I don't want to be harsh when I, when I address this. I'm not picking on the question necessarily, but I call it out because it's a question that I hear all the time. It's typically the question that most people start with when it comes to church. What should I get out of it? As a pastor, I've had tons of people who, say that they, who come to me and say, hey, we're visiting your church today, and we're church shopping. And I get what they mean, right? They're saying that they are looking for a church. But even in these ways of approaching church, we can't, get a, we can't get away from the consumer language about what it means to be a part of a church. I'm shopping for a church. It almost sounds like I'm furniture shopping or I'm car shopping. And in a lot of people's minds, they're not all that different. Furniture shopping, car shopping, and church shopping. Just like with a piece of furniture, you want to find something that's comfortable, something that fits well in your room, something that fits around everything else in your life. When it comes to church, most people want a church that's comfortable, it's going to make them feel good, and it's going to fit into their life. When you're shopping for a car, maybe you want a car with all the options and features that you're looking for. That's going to have the performance that you want, and it's going to look great. A lot of people come to church asking, what kind of ministries do you have? How are they going to provide for the things that I need in my life? What's your performance like on Sunday morning? Do you have a really good band? Do you have a pastor who can teach engagingly the word and be dynamic? And does it look good? Do you put it all together in a nice beautiful package. And look, I'm being a little facetious here, but I'm not, I'm not exaggerating all that much, because people tend to be much more focused on, when it comes to church, what I am looking for in a church. And you might not think that's a problem, but I think if you don't, it's because we've been so immersed in our culture that we don't know the difference. I've been in church ministry for 20 years, and I don't think I have ever had one person say to me as the first question about a church, hi, we are new here. How can we participate in your church and serve alongside you? Or something to the effect of, how can we help carry out the mission of Jesus here? It eventually comes, but it's never the first question that people ask. It's more the question of, how and what can the church do for me? 
And one of the things that we see here in Acts chapter 2 is, of course, the speaking of tongues that dominates the scene. And for most people, that grabs their imagination as they read this passage. We know this as the speaking in tongues uh, scene in the Bible in a lot of ways. But the speaking of tongues, it's important to remember, is a spiritual gift. And the Bible says, just like any other spiritual gift, when it's used properly, it's used to edify the body for serving and building others up. And you actually see that happening here in the Pentecost scene. As each person speaks in another person's language, that begins to build community, having the effect of one person speaking for me and one person ministering to me as I minister back to them by speaking their language is how the first mission is built, how the first community of Christ followers is built, by mutually serving one another. And it's not about me edifying myself or being concerned about how I'm growing or being fed primarily, but it's the Spirit serving, allowing me to serve another person in the midst of community. And at the same time, I'm being served by another person. That's the way the church is supposed to work. So here's the church, this community that's meant to change the world, not God's plan B. They are God's plan A of the missional plan to save the world. And that first day, they're a diverse group of people who are brought together. I mean, they don't even speak the same language, and they're hanging out together in the same house celebrating Pentecost. In fact, that might be the most diverse the church has ever been in the history of the church, the very first day it was born. And it's brought together under the community and the essential mission of Jesus and indwelt by God himself. Man, that's the church. And I said earlier that the participation in a local church is essential to your Christian life. Now, why is that? If it's not obvious yet, I've got a few more reasons that I believe it's essential. First of all, community is essential. Throughout Scripture, I don't know if you've noticed this, but God has always spoken to communities and groups of people. He's always spoken to his people, not his person. Even when he spoke to Abraham, it was speaking to Abraham about the descendants, the nation that would come. When he spoke to Moses, it was speaking to the Israelites through Moses. When he spoke to David, it was to anoint David as king to be the king of Israel. And then when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament letters are written to churches, and maybe aside from Timothy and Titus, are not written to individuals. Even in Timothy's situation, it was written so that he could be an overseer or a pastor of the church that he was at. So it was written on behalf of the church. Now look, at Pentecost, Jesus called a community together before he sent the Spirit. It wasn't John who got the Spirit while he was doing his private devotionals in his home. It was this community that was gathered waiting for the promise of God. And as they did, they shared their gifts with one another. And for all of those who say, I don't need the church to grow, and the church doesn't need me, and I don't need the church because it's just about my relationship with Jesus, hopefully you are seeing that God calls you to Jesus through his church. He loves his church so much that he died for her. And maybe you've heard the phrase before, Jesus loves you so much that if you were the only person in the world, he would die just for you. I don't know if there's ever been a more American Christianity statement than that. And look, technically it's true, I guess, but it's not actually true because Jesus didn't die for you or me. He died for his church. Imagine if on that day, as the people were gathered there at Pentecost celebrating, that the guy from Cappadocia decided that he didn't want to celebrate Pentecost that morning. He called him up and he said, guys, look, I'm just going to stream it live from my house and I don't really need to be a part of it. I'm just going to kind of worship on my own just with me and God. 
First of all, it wouldn't have entered into the mind of a first century person to do anything like that. Not because they didn't have the technology, but because that wasn't the culture. The culture was to be together. But let's say that happened, and the Cappadocian didn't show up. And maybe the Cappadocian was the one who was supposed to be speaking Egyptian. And so all of a sudden, not only does the Cappadocian miss out on the birth of the church and getting the blessing of hearing someone else from a different country speak God's words in his language to him, but now the Cappadocian, who's supposed to be speaking Egyptian to the Egyptian, misses out on that opportunity so the Egyptian doesn't get to hear God's word in his language. The same thing happens in the church. God works through the church like he works nowhere else. And each person in the church has a role to play, not for themselves, but for someone else. And if you choose not to be a part of community, it doesn't just affect you, but it affects other people. And this is why we practice membership here at North Bible. Membership is not for committing to an organization or a club. Membership is a commitment to the other people around us, reminding ourselves and recognizing the fact that we are in this together and we need each other. And we are keeping each other accountable to following Jesus and saying, when it's my turn to speak Egyptian, I'm going to speak Egyptian because it's needed in the church. Which brings us to the second reason that church is essential to the Christian life. Secondly, serving is mandatory. And one of the most frequent images that we are given in the church of what the church looks like is the church as a body. A body that moves and works and follows. And of course, every part of the body has a function. And if that part of the body ceases to fulfill its function in the way that it's supposed to, the rest of the body begins to struggle. And again, going back to the scene at Pentecost, we've been given at least all of us one gift to contribute. If you are a Christ follower, you are born again by the Spirit, you have at least one gift, probably many gifts to contribute in the church. And again, if our Cappadocian guy sat at home and spoke Egyptian to himself, he's doing nobody any good, not even himself. That gift was given to him for the benefit of another person. And maybe you've heard the well-quoted stat known as the 80-20 rule in church. It's something church leaders talk about all the time, so maybe you haven't heard it. But basically, it, it, it means that 20% of the people in the church do about 80% of serving or 80% of the work in the church. And that's true across like almost all American churches, that ratio. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, it's become a rule in churches. That means that there are parts of the body that are working overtime and being stressed out under the weight of keeping the church going. And I can tell you, there are a handful of people that come to mind right away in this church who fit that description. And look, the number one reason for what most people give about not being able to serve is that they say, I'm too busy. Which always bugs me, because most of us make time for the things that really matter. It's just who we are as human beings. We will make time for the things that really matter. If there's something that doesn't matter as much, we'll move that thing off our plate so that we can move the thing onto our plate that we really believe is worth it. It also bugs me because it implies that those who are serving aren't busy. Like they don't have busy lives as well. They're not even busier maybe than you are. And rather than saying I'm too busy, I really wish people would say I don't want to serve. I think it's a lot more honest at least, and it gets to what really is the issue about all of this. Because look, serving is hard. And if you look at church for what you can get out of it rather than what you can give, you won't want to serve. Serving requires us to be sacrificial, and it's hard to do, but it is absolutely necessary in the church. Like I mentioned my Sunday school teacher, Gary, earlier. And my friends and I did not make it easy on Gary to serve week after week as a Sunday school teacher. I can only imagine what he told his wife when he went home every day on Sunday about what he experienced. 
But look, that didn't matter to Gary. Gary showed up every week, and whether we were going to listen or not, which most weeks we were not listening, he prepared and taught that Sunday school lesson like eternity depended upon it. And he was going to serve these little punks who did nothing but give him a hard time no matter what because he was called to do it. And he probably got no appreciation, and he probably saw very little fruit, but he served. And look, I'm nothing special, but guys like Gary, as I grew up in the church, made an investment in my life that I'm always going to be grateful for. Something that took years to bear fruit that they never had a chance to see is now bearing fruit several years later. And so the third reason that involvement is essential to our Christian life is that worship is a privilege. Now certainly this is the one that I'm missing out on right now, realizing how special it is when something's taken away from you, you realize how special and how much it means to you. And of course meeting in person right now has been taken away from us. And so I can't wait until we do it again. But if you look at what Pentecost was, Pentecost was one of those festivals which called people from all kinds of different places to the city of Jerusalem. You see it again in this list here. And as you look at the list of where those people are from, and you look at like a, a map of the ancient world, you can see that some of them come, came from a long distance. And they weren't flying there, they weren't driving there, they were on foot or they were on camelback riding into the city. And so a trip, just to get a chance to go worship during one of these festivals in the city of Jerusalem, would have cost you a ton of money, would have cost you a ton of time, and it was actually a pilgrimage and a journey that you had to sacrifice to be a part of. And yet the people who were there gladly did it because they considered worshiping with other people to be essential and to be a blessing and a privilege. You know, through our website, we were asked the question, what should I experience when I come to worship? Look, I know a lot of people don't like the term worship service because it's an old term and we talk about now worship experience or worship gathering and those kinds of things. But I really prefer the term worship service because I think what it does is it reminds us of why we come to worship and why we meet here. We are here when we come in worship services, whether it's online or whether it's here in person, we come to worship to meet with God and to serve God in worship. Look, what we get out of the worship service is ancillary. It's whether we had an emotional experience during a song or learned something new during a sermon is secondary. So many of us are dissatisfied with our worship experiences because we're looking for something that is not what worship is supposed to be about. We're here to worship God, and in the end, so many times what we often focus on is what we got out of the sermon or what we got out of the worship service that day. And if you're not convinced that consumerism has kind of taken over our perspective on what the church is supposed to be and our experience as Christians, that's one of the indicators. And finally, mission is priority. Look, hopefully we can see by this point how the church was formed for mission from the beginning. But a church that forgets its mission and doesn't live out its mission will die. And this is a calling to mission that every person needs to embrace as part of the church. Every person as a missionary in that sense. And many times a church will think that a staff and particularly a pastor will cause a church to grow. And they think to themselves if we can just get the right pastor or the leader of a youth ministry, that ministry will grow and sometimes if you get the right leader, a dynamic pastor, a dynamic leader, that ministry will grow. But 90% of the time, that growth comes from Christians who have left other churches to come to your church. So it's known as transfer growth. And look, I'm not necessarily against all transfer growth. I mean, as the saying goes, grow green grass and some sheep will come to eat that grass. But at the same time, we shouldn't live under the notion that just because a church is growing, that, we are, that the kingdom of God is growing. 
and that we are following the mission of Jesus. That we are accomplishing the mission that the church was established for. Because experiencing God and then just kind of sitting around and waiting for people to come would be like the Christians at Pentecost experiencing all that they experienced in that room, tongues and wind and fire and all of it, and then just sitting there looking at each other and saying, well, that was wild. Maybe we should have a potluck now. They knew instead that they had to go out and tell the world about it, and that's exactly what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. If you've read that book before, you know that it's aptly named because from that point on, there is nonstop action about how the gospel goes forward and the mission of Jesus is being accomplished in the early church. It's amazing. Remember I told you about that youth pastor who would come barging into into, uh, the back office of my house before he would leave after all of those youth events we held at our house? Well, my first job actually in the church was as a youth ministry intern in that same church in that same youth ministry several years later. And it was in part because that youth pastor had done the simple thing of pursuing me and seeking me out by the gospel, by being on mission and inviting me time and time again to church. Now, change is a big topic right now. Of course, everyone wants to change the world. We have protests and movements springing up everywhere. People who believe that their latest social media post is going to change the world. Look, protests and movements, and yes, even social media are fine and they have their place. But the place, but I'm convinced that the place where change actually happens, where the change actually lasts, is when the Spirit of God does that in somebody's heart. If you want to be a part of a movement that changes the world, go back and read the book of Acts and see that this movement, which started with a hundred people, literally changed the world for eternity. There is no greater calling than that. So if you really want to change the world, don't do the easy and ineffective thing of posting social media posts all day long. Get involved in the mission of the church. Get involved in seeing people's lives change. You won't see as many blue digital thumbs, but you're going to get to see real change happen in the world. And if you want to know why I am a pastor and why I love it so much, it's largely because of that. I still believe in the church. I believe in the capacity that the church has to change the world for eternity because the church has the greatest message the world has ever heard. The good news that the king of the universe is coming and he's bringing his kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace with him and it's taking root even now in this world. And I guess at heart, maybe I am a bit of an activist, but an activist in the sense that I want to see people and cultures really change. And although the world may have given up a long time ago on the church as the hope of the world, Jesus has not. I believe with everything that I am that Jesus has the same dream and purpose for the church today that he did 2,000 years ago when the church was born at Pentecost. And that the one who has authority over heaven and earth is still madly in love with his church. With all of her warts, with all of her wrinkles, with all of her stinky breath. And he still loves that church and loves his bride so much that he gave his life for her. And look, I can't speak for you, but I know that I've been called to do much the same. To love the church in all of her ugliness, in all of her beauty, and to give my life to serve her. And again, this is not me convincing you that the church is going to be all that you want it to be. The church will let you down. The church will disappoint you. The church will hurt you. It's made up of sinners just like you and me. So there is sin and there will be sin in the church. But you have to come to the point of saying and deciding, I'm going to be a part of the church because Jesus called all Christians to be in the church. 
And that a Christian who is not actively engaged in the local body is being disobedient to that call. I don't know how you can read scripture and come to any other conclusion than that God always gathers his people together and he wants you, as a Christ follower, to be a part of, that, of those people. And I don't know if I'm supposed to admit this, but there have been several times in the past 20 years of ministry that I've wanted to quit. And I almost really did a couple times, thinking it would be easier just to do something else rather than be a pastor at a church. And it probably, honestly, would have been a lot easier. But what kept me going was knowing that I was doing this out of a sense of calling from God. This is what he had called me and designed me to do. And in the end, I had to decide whether or not I was going to step into that calling as painful as it may be sometimes. And my simple invitation to you this morning is that you would join me. You may have been hurt or disillusioned or disinterested in the church in the past, and your last connection to the church is just that you're watching this stream on a Sunday morning and you barely were able to bring yourself to do that. I get it. I think we've all been there at one time or another. But the church still matters, and she always will. When everything else is gone, Jesus is going to come back for his church, his beloved bride. And this morning, as we respond we're going to step to the communion table together. And I think it's really an appropriate place for us to land this and to respond because the communion table reminds us so much of the importance and the significance of Jesus' church and Jesus' people together. There's a lot of things that this table represents. First, it represents the fact that we are drawn together around the Lord's table. That no matter where we are or who we are or where we come from or what language we speak, we share this same table together because it is Jesus who has set the table before us and calls us to, together around it. Secondly, the food that we take, the sustenance that we are provided is, is a table of spiritual food that represents Jesus' body and his blood given for us for our salvation. As the bread of life, Jesus' body is broken so that we might have life. As the Lamb of God, his sacrifice atones for our sins so that we can have forgiveness of sin and it reconciles us to him and reconciles us together around that table. Third, this is a table of promise. It's a table that looks forward to the return of Jesus as we are told to do this in remembrance of him, as we are told to enjoy this meal under the promise that the fullness of its meaning we will see one day at the wedding feast of Jesus and his bride when he returns to make all things new. And all of this, this is a table of freedom. It's a table that speaks to real gospel freedom. Freedom not as independence as we might typically understand it. Freedom is freedom from self and dependence on Jesus. It's a freedom from guilt and sin so that I can live with God. Freedom is not individualism, it's being free from myself so that I can be free to love and serve others around this table. Freedom is not personal sovereignty, it is being free from my sins so I can allow Jesus to be the one who is sovereign, the one who has been given all authority, and who calls me to this wonderful calling as a part of the church. It's not freedom for me to just enjoy, but freedom to serve my neighbor and to love God. And so with that being said, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to go ahead and take, thank you, Wes. Go ahead and take the elements. If you would grab the elements that you have prepared to take as well, I'm going to allow Matthew 26 to guide us through 
taking of communion. This again was Jesus' last night with his disciples when he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. And in Matthew chapter 26, it says this. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I invite the band to join us back up on stage as we close out. I want to pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful for the idea of what the church is, and not just an idea, but, Lord, the reality of what we have experienced in church. Yes, there are so many things that can be broken and hurtful in a church, but there are so many beautiful, wonderful things you do among us. And, Lord, we thank you for the way that you show us your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace, and your mercy by being in community together. And, Lord, I pray that the only thing, really, as we've said this morning, that can change Someone's heart is your spirit, and so we ask, would you pour out your spirit in abundance on our lives so that our hearts might change? We might see the original vision and purpose that you called the church to be, a church who is on mission in the world, a church who in every generation is called to understand the times and to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us. And Lord, we admit that we don't in a lot of ways, especially right now, we are struggling to see what that looks like. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see, you give us ears to hear, and most importantly, you would give us a heart after your own so that we would see this world through the lens that you see it, through a world that you love, people created in the image of God whom you love that are, that are called to repentance and called to faith. And help us to see how to step into that and to be faithful and to have the heart of that first church who could do nothing else but speak of what they had seen and what they had heard, no matter what the consequences were. And Lord, crowd out those things in our hearts and in our minds that distract us right now. We are a people who in so many ways fall into the culture around us that sometimes it is hard to distinguish between where the culture of the world starts and where our faith starts. But Father, call us back to what it looks like. Show us our blind spots in each and every one of us so that we can follow you, Lord Jesus, more clearly and more faithfully. And in the end, we know that you, as the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth, will continue to build your church. We thank you that you love her. We thank you that you love us. And we've been given the gift of being able to be a part of what you have created. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, 
and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Maybe uh, at this point you've been so encouraged and challenged today that you are ready to serve right away. As you know, we're kind of in a, we're, le- we're learning to do church a little differently right now. And so our, our ministries are, are uh, some of them are doing things differently. Some of them are virtually meeting. But look, you can do things like be a part of a community group right now. We are working to get back together soon so that our ministries will be operating. And so what I would ask you to do is to think about it this morning, is that we've got a few weeks, whenever that may be, and when we start meeting again, we're going to need you to be with us. We're going to need you to connect back with us. We're going to need you to serve with us again. And we want to come out of this thing stronger than how we went in. And I know that's a phrase that's thrown around by everybody right now, but I really believe for the church of Jesus that is possible. And so be thinking about, be making room on your plate to serve and to connect, to be a part of community groups, to serve in whatever way you possibly can. Think about the gifts that God has given you. Somebody needs to be blessed by that gift that God has given you. And it's designed to build the church up. I love you guys. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful to be here at North. As I come up on a year being here, I'm so thankful to be here. Hope you are all blessed. You have a great week. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.